patients are different in some way. Let's delve into high flow nasal cannula for COVID-19 patients. We were waiting, we were waiting, we were waiting. What's the risk to healthcare workers? That does really highlight the need for PPE. Washington was hit, New York was hit. COVID-19 is ARDS. Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So thankful you are joining us for this podcast. And very similar to our most recent podcast, we are bringing back a CCPEM favorite that we unfortunately have been missing for a while. Dr. Mike Allison is joining us on the podcast to talk about another important COVID topic, and that is the use of high-flow nasal cannula in patients with COVID-19 infection and pneumonia. So I'm very, very much looking forward to this discussion because it is certainly an evolving therapy. Our airway management, our respiratory, our ventilation, our oxygenation support continues to change every few days as we manage patients with this illness. But before we delve into the clinical topic, Mike, thanks so much for joining us back on the podcast. It's been way too long. And if you could just bring our listeners up to date with what's going on in your life and really what have you been dealing with at your hospital with respect to COVID patients? Well, thanks, Mike. That's a overly kind introduction, but I'm always happy to be back on the podcast and speaking with your listeners. What have I been up to since graduating from the program? I've been at St. Agnes Hospital, which is a quick three miles down the road from university. So I'm in Baltimore City, pretty busy emergency department at our hospital. Clinically, I've been working 100% in our ICU, and it's a busy urban intensive care unit, busy emergency department. Most of our ICU admissions are coming from the emergency department or in-house decompensations, very few transfers coming in. And our COVID experience, I think, is like many in the region. For a while, we were waiting, we were waiting, we were waiting. Washington was hit, New York was hit. We had meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, trying to prepare the best we could for what we thought was going to be an absolute onslaught. And it took a little while to ramp up. Over the past couple of weeks, we've started to see our numbers in the intensive care unit sort of balloon up. And, you know, we've exceeded our typical capacity. We've taken over other areas of the hospital and made them into intensive care units and sitting at about 150% plus of our typical ICU volume. And of those patients, I think, you know, it's about 80 to 90% COVID, COVID pneumonia and COVID related complications. While preparing in all those meetings, and I'm sure it was similar for you at university, we're trying to figure out what to do with mechanical ventilators. Do we have enough of them? How to treat these patients and how to keep our staff safe since this seemed like a quite an infectious coronavirus up front and still seems like it is. And that got me interested in looking through our protocols for not only mechanical ventilation, but for non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula, which are particular interests of mine, and coming up with sort of a rationale for why we should or shouldn't use it, how to use these respiratory support devices safely and most effectively for patients. Well, let's get into this discussion. Just before we do so, so everyone knows, Mike did our EM, IM, and critical care program at the University of Maryland. And then Mike went on, as you heard, to join the group at one of our community sites or a community site just down the road 
from university. And whenever there's questions regarding non-invasive ventilation, high-flow nasal cannula, Mike is my go-to person in terms of speaking, in terms of writing articles. Mike has really developed a nice niche in these non-invasive ventilation therapies. So Mike, with that, let's delve into high-flow nasal cannula for COVID-19 patients. Kind of set the background, and then I'm going to ask you a few targeted questions. Sure. High-flow nasal cannula, many of your listeners are using this It's a respiratory therapy predicated on high flow rates, which you can go up to 60. And in some centers, mostly international, are using up to 70 liters per minute of oxygen flow. And you titrate the fraction of inspired oxygen anywhere from 30% to 100%. So high flow rates, titratable, and it sort of matches somebody's inspiratory flow demand. So somebody in respiratory distress, breathing 40 times a minute, you put a couple liters nasal cannula on them at six liters per minute, their inspiratory flow rates are way higher than that. So it's trying to match those inspiratory flows. So that's sort of the background on high flow. And I think a lot of people have become used to using this in particular in hypoxic respiratory failure. So a lot of interest in using it for COVID-19, which the characteristic hallmark presentation is a hypoxic respiratory failure with pneumonia starts out with ground glass and can evolve to a bilateral ARDS picture. So the high flow has been studied in the past. I think folks will remember the Florali trial of 2015. There's a trial that looked at high flow versus non-invasive ventilation versus standard oxygenation and found that a 90-day mortality in the group that gets high flow was actually better than the other two groups. But the primary endpoint of that study, which was intubation rate, showed no difference amongst the three arms. A couple of years later, you have immunocompromised randomized controlled trial called the HIGH trial done in 2018, where you're randomizing immunocompromised patients. Think of your malignancies, think of your HIV AIDS patients. And these folks, when given high flow nasal cannula compared to standard oxygen therapy, found no decrease in either intubation or mortality rate. Despite that and that equivocal big literature that's sort of driving our practice, I think high flow is common, is here to stay. And in most places, when you're having a patient that's requiring more than six liters per minute of nasal cannula, you're not reaching for the Venturi mask or the Oxy mask as often as you're reaching for a high flow nasal cannula device to provide the respiratory support. I would say it's definitely something we've been using a lot, even pre-COVID whether it be in the emergency department or in the ICU. I agree with you in terms of it's here to stay. I recall being interested in this first during training. We were using it a lot in the ICU. I'd come down for emergency medicine rotations and didn't have the penetrance in emergency medicine. And so I started looking at, you know, why and doing some research. And that sort of helped develop this clinical interest in the therapy. So I finished residency in 2015, and I could probably count on a piece of paper how many patients I had ever placed on high-flow nasal cannula in the emergency department. And I think the utilization of that has just grown in the past five years. So interested to hear your perspective on that, how often it's being used, you think? Is it per shift every day people are being placed on it? Well, in the pre-COVID time frame, I think that we were probably using it at least once every day, maybe even once every two days, certainly multiple times throughout the week we were utilizing this therapy. And to bring us into this COVID discussion, much like many others initially evaluating patients, and we've done a few COVID podcasts here, those initial recommendations were 
intubate early and really avoid using non-invasive ventilatory therapies because of potential risk for exposure, aerosolizing procedures, aerosolizing generating therapies, of which high-flow nasal cannula was one. So maybe let's just kind of start off, what do you see the risks of this therapy to healthcare workers now that we've changed that early intubation mantra and perhaps going more to these non-invasive therapies? Yeah, and I think to your point, one of the initial guidelines that came out when COVID was early on was the WHO guidelines. And of all the subsequent guidelines, and now in retrospect, we've had more information and data and literature and societies coming forward with guidelines. But the WHO guidelines have been the most restrictive, saying very cautious use of high-flow nasal cannula. So I think that started the practice out in being sort of a little bit cautious about it and piqued my interest to research the aerosol risk of all my reading and lecturing on high-flow nasal cannula. Aerosolization risk was one of those topics that really didn't come to the forefront nearly ever. So I had to sort of educate myself on that. And so the biggest risk that I think we all wanted to know is what's the risk to healthcare workers, right? Are we going to be decimating our frontline staff by using high-flow nasal cannula? And certainly we wouldn't want to do it if we were. So the literature on that is a little bit spotty, but it's the best we have. So I can help guide your listeners down a path of whether they want to use high-flow nasal cannula in the most rational way by describing a couple studies. The first were these mannequin studies done by a group lead author, Hui, and they were done over the past decade. So what they did is they took an aerosol mannequin, put it in a negative pressure room, had an ability to simulate lung compliance to various types of lung compliance, normal or abnormal lung compliance, and they ended up using smoke as the surrogate for aerosol and droplet spread. And they would measure the distance that smoke would emit from this mannequin using a laser. And there's a number of studies, so I'm summarizing probably five or six different studies, each individual study looking at a particular respiratory device. But the nasal cannula are bread and butter for respiratory support when someone's hypoxic, just the traditional small bore nasal cannula at five liters per minute had a dispersion distance and they measured that coming out the front of the patient's mouth head on and they had a distance of 100 centimeters of dispersion with a nasal cannula at five liters per minute. Non-rebreather mask, 12 liters per minute, not sure why they didn't use 15 or a flush rate but is what it is, 12 liters per minute, found a dispersion distance of less than 10 centimeters from the mouth. So significant improvement when you're putting that full non-rebreather mask on. High-flow nasal cannula at 60 liters per minute had a dispersion distance of 17 centimeters with the nasal prongs fitting in perfectly. Remember, this is a mannequin, so those nasal prongs were fit in there perfectly and 17 centimeters forward. If the prongs slid out a little bit, which they did simulate, you can get up to 60 centimeters of sideways spread. So nasal cannula, 100 centimeters, non-rebreather mask, 10 centimeters, high-flow nasal cannula, 17 forward, 60 out the sides with good fit or poor fit, respectively. And then you've got non-invasive ventilation. So CPAP at 20 centimeters of water with a perfect fit had negligible dispersion distance. What they saw was just some little bit of smoke emitting from around the mask, but not in any stream. BiPAP at 13 over 5 with a full face mask had a dispersion distance of 92 centimeters. And then BiPAP with a helmet 
at 10 over 10, had a very negligible dispersion distance, the same thing, just a little bit of smoke emitting from around the seal, but no sort of jet of aerosolization. So my takeaway here, Mike, is all the respiratory devices, all of them are producing some sort of air dispersion. And a perfect fit on a non-invasive may reduce the dispersion in the greatest fashion. I think high flow nasal cannula fits in line with what we're seeing for all these respiratory support devices. And there's nothing to say that it's more dispersion than a nasal cannula. So I think that that led me to think, okay, maybe we can use this safely in certain patients to avoid having to intubate everyone. Now that study was done, or you've culminated a lot with respect to mannequins. Do we have any literature in this current SARS-CoV-2 infection or perhaps other types of infections? So in terms of the risk, we don't have a lot in the current pandemic. What we do know is that folks are using it. In the Wuhan series that they talked about, I think about 60% or over received high-flow cannula at some point. In Seattle, I think the number was a little bit about 40% of patients were receiving high-flow nasal cannula. So some variations on the fact that people are using it. The data in the past in SARS-1 in Toronto, they actually did some retrospective analysis to see was the use of any respiratory support device associated with healthcare worker contracting SARS. So this is another coronavirus, a different coronavirus, SARS-CoV-1. And in a study that was done out of this Toronto cohort of 624 patients, 26 healthcare workers ended up getting the infection. And they found that the folks that had the infection that got the infection had a high-risk encounter. They were around the patient's mucous membranes or doing some examination of the eyes. They were manipulating patients' oxygen masks, collecting sputum, or involved in the intubation process for these patients. And what's interesting to note is that non-invasive ventilation was associated with increased transmission risk based upon this data, but high-flow nasal cannula was not. And I think of note and what has led to this sort of outcry for PPE and why we should be so focused on keeping the safety of our healthcare workers with appropriate respirators is that none of the 26 providers that acquired SARS-CoV-1 were wearing an N95 at the time of patient exposure. That does really highlight the need for PPE. Now, what are your thoughts? Many have in their recommendations, in their clinical guidelines, in their emergency departments, or even upstairs, in using this device, putting a mask over the patient once you've instituted high-flow nasal cannula. What are your thoughts on that? So that's what we do. We've sort of put together a process, and we've sort of asked that when starting high-flow nasal cannula that you put a mask on the patients. Now, I'll be very honest in saying that it's not really well tolerated by patients. Patients love taking off that mask. They'll keep the high-flow nasal cannula in and in place, but that mask tends to bother them. But we keep a mask on as much as we can for these folks. And it's based off of a little bit of literature that shows that the masks actually can capture the aerosolized particles. One study showed 83% of particles dispersed when high-flow nasal cannula was used at 40 liters per minute were caught by the mask. And then particles that escape the mask, that was at 17% that were able to escape the mask, travel the same distance as patients who are not wearing oxygen devices without masks. So folks in the community not wearing a mask who are talking and are infected could spread the infection just as easily as a patient on 
nasal high flow, wearing a mask in a negative pressure room in the hospital. And I think since our staff has been appropriately provided with respirators every time they're going into these rooms, we felt that that was a level of safety that we felt comfortable with using nasal high flow. And that's something that we do as well. Let me ask, we've talked about some risks to us as healthcare workers, Mike, in this illness. Are there any risks or what are the risks to patients? Are we potentially harming them with utilization of this? So that comes back, I think, a little bit to the question of intubate early or intubate late. And COVID-19 has confused me in, in certain circumstances when you see some of these patients and how they appear just not in all that much distress. And, you know, I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast has heard others who are, you know, sort of speaking from the mountaintops about the fact that these patients are different in some way. You know, and I don't know if that's just due to the overwhelming number of ARDS patients that it seems like we're seeing these folks who have very low oxygen levels, but are tolerating them without a significant increase in their respiratory rate. So I think the big question about intubate earlier, intubate late is one that no one has a real answer to and something that I've sort of struggled with. And what I sort of fall back on is I feel like I provide and I want to provide high quality of care to these ARDS patients, no matter what the presenting illness is, whether it's a traumatic ARDS, sepsis-induced ARDS, or a COVID-19 ARDS. So I end up using my same metrics to start folks on high-flow nasal cannula, and then to decide on when to escalate to intubation and mechanical ventilation. And the reason that I tow that line is because we don't know if delaying intubation, even outside of the COVID-19 patients, can produce harm. You know, there's been studies, there's this one study I've talked about where it was a retrospective analysis of everybody who failed high-flow nasal cannula. So if you take everybody who failed high-flow nasal cannula and you separate them into two groups, those who failed early, less than 48 hours, and those who failed late after 48 hours, propensity matched them. And look, and they found that the people who failed early actually did better than the folks who failed late, which is sort of interesting because I would imagine that the folks that failed late probably had less severe disease up front. You would think intuitively that you're getting them by day two, day three, they look okay, day four, they look okay, and then suddenly they get worse. So up front, their numbers must have looked pretty good to push them out that far. So I think that that's always been a concern of mine is when does high flow nasal cannula, what duration does it potentially become harmful? And based upon sort of that retrospective literature, I don't know that that's perfect data. And that study certainly had a bunch of methodological flaws to it. So what I end up doing is just watching them closely and using something called the ROCKS index to end up predicting whether folks might succeed or fail on high flow nasal cannula. Mike, you've given us a lot of great pearls already, but let's see where the rubber hits the road in your mind. I know a lot of organizations such as the WHO, Society of Critical Care Medicine, NIH, have put out their guidelines or recommendations on this. But what are your recommendations on the ideal patient right now, as the literature states and your experience would tell you? What are you doing to select that patient for high-flow nasal cannula? What markers are you using? And then how are you monitoring them with respect to when they're on high-flow nasal cannula? Mike, here's what we came up with for the use of high-flow nasal cannula, and I'm not going to say that this isn't perfect. This is opinion-based, and of those guidelines that you mentioned, 
the NIH, SCCM, ATS. There's an Italian group. There's a German group. There's the ANSYS group from Australia and New Zealand. They've all recommended for using high-flow nasal cannula, but without any specific guidance. So our hospital, we came up with this specific guidance, which is patients ought to be awake, protecting their airway, able to clear secretions, absence of multi-organ failure or shock. Folks need to be requiring more than six liters of traditional nasal cannula to maintain adequate oxygen saturations. And we define adequate oxygen saturations just for ease of a round number at 90% sats. A respiratory rate of less than 30 breaths per minute is our guidance. And then an initial P to F ratio, if you have one, if you happen to have a gas of greater than 150, basically eliminating those who have severe ARDS or the more serious side of the moderate ARDS. And we end up taking those out of the equation and using nasal high flow in other groups. And then you asked about monitoring these folks. So we do monitor them closely, at least I do sort of vigilantly monitor them. And I use the ROX index. ROX index is something that came out as a study in 2015, I want to say, and then in 2018, early 2019, right at the turn of the year there, there was a validation cohort that came out in the Blue Journal of the American Thoracic Society. And the ROX index is the ratio of the SpO2 to FiO2. So that was, I think, a nice compromise, recognizing that folks aren't going to have a traditional PaO2 to FiO2 ratio when you're using high flow. So they use a SpO2 to FiO2 ratio, something that all of us can acquire just by looking at the patient sats and looking at the set FiO2 on the high flow nasal cannula. So you take that ratio and divide it by respiratory rate. That's it. It's pretty simple. And what they found is if your ROCKS index is greater than 4.88 at any time point, that's going to be predictive of success of high-flow nasal cannula. They particularly looked at this within the first day at 2, 6, and 12 hours. If at 2 hours the ROCKS index is low, they have a number of less than 2.85, that would predict failure. At 6 hours, if your ROCKS index is less than 3.47, predicts failure. At 12 hours, ROCKS index of less than 3.85, predicts failure. And I'm looking at these numbers right now. I don't have them memorized, even though I'm using them almost on a daily basis right now. There's a MD calc and there's a bunch of calcs that you can just grab on your mobile device, plug in SpO2, FiO2, respiratory rate, and it spits out the number and will tell you the cutoffs. But that's how I end up watching my patients. And I'll combine that with some clinical gestalt, because you may have noticed that if a ROCKS index is greater than 4.88 predicts success, but at two hours, if it's less than 2.85, it predicts failure. There's a big range in there where you might get a ROCKS index of 3 or 3.5. And you have to make a clinical decision in that gray zone. And for me, a couple of things that I'm looking at is how's their blood pressure? Are they going on to some low-dose pressors at this point? Are they continuing to have thoracoabdominal dyssynchrony? Am I getting a reduction in their respiratory rate like I suspect to get when I place somebody on high-flow nasal cannula? If so, I'll monitor them at the end of my shift or have somebody overnight take a look at them. If they're having these worse signs of what I would perceive as worsening, I'll end up moving towards mechanical ventilation for those folks.
Those are incredible pearls, Mike. Thanks for taking us through that. And for those of you listening, Mike has put together a really great handout to accompany this discussion. And I would encourage you all to pull it up. It should be a PDF that's linked to this episode. And Mike's gone through and created a table for you in terms of those various organizations and their current recommendations on the use of high-flow nasal cannula. He's also put in there the criteria he uses the rocks index numbers along with things such as the exclusion criteria or when patients aren't doing well on high flow nasal cannula. So incredibly, incredibly useful handout for this episode. Mike, you've given us a great review here and things to think about and really important pearls and pitfalls in using high flow nasal cannula. If you could bring us home here, tie it all together, what are your main take home points that you'd like to convey to everybody? So again, Mike, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. I'd say my take home are the following. COVID-19 is ARDS in my mind. It's hypoxic respiratory failure. And in ARDS in general, you're not jumping to intubation and mechanically ventilate patients once they go over six liters per minute. There's some sort of buildup. And I think that high flow nasal cannula sort of fits that buildup phase and providing some extra respiratory support before patients are in florid respiratory failure. But this is a gray zone in the literature. We don't know a lot about it. I think that the risk to healthcare workers is low enough to justify the use of high-flow nasal cannula. I can't stress enough that we would love to put all of these folks into negative pressure rooms. We don't always do that. That's sort of the ideal setting. We want to put on masks on all of these patients and we sort of push them to continue to wear those masks whenever they have high-flow nasal cannula in place. And then certainly our providers are going into the rooms wearing their appropriate respirators 100% of the time. And then I think these folks need to be monitored pretty closely because I'm certain that I'm not the only one. A lot of your listeners have seen a lot of high-flow nasal cannula failure, both in COVID and pre-COVID times, and it happens. And you have to be able to recognize that. And you don't want to recognize it late. You want to recognize it early. So I like using the ROCKS index. I like looking at my patients and looking for thoracoabdominal dyssynchrony, knowing the shock status of my patients. If they're on pressors, you know, that's a really big indicator in a a lot of literature pre-COVID that would suggest failure of high-flow nasal cannula. So I'm really cautious about keeping patients on high-flow nasal cannula who are in shock. Mike, this has been an outstanding discussion. You brought us up to speed, up to date with where we're at currently with high-flow nasal cannula use in the patient with COVID-19 pneumonia. So couldn't be more thankful for you for taking the time out of your busy schedule in terms of the ICU and managing your unit that's currently at 150% capacity. For any of you who have any questions for Mike, please let me know. I'll get them over to him. And once again, please reference his handout that he put together for us for this podcast. Mike, thanks again. It's been too long, and I'm going to guarantee that we're getting you on much sooner in the upcoming months for another great discussion. So my thanks. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland for CCPM. Looking forward to talking to you with our next podcast. Bye for now.